church as a little boy, my uh, mother was always in the choir, which meant that my father had to sit with me. And a lot of times we sit up in the balcony because, you know, there was no children's church back then. And, uh, and, but my dad had a good voice, and he would sing that song to me as, as a little boy real low. And I have a lot of memories when I hear that. So uh, great job, and looking forward to today as we continue our our uh, sermon series in grace. So there's a story of three men who were hiking through a forest and they came upon a large, wide, deep, raging river. And what do you do? You can't cross it, right? And so they said, well, what should we do? And they said, well, I don't know. Let's, maybe we can, we can just pray. Let's just pray. Maybe the Lord will, will help us. So one guy said, dear Lord, please give me the strength to cross this river. I'm going to try to swim across it and, and I know you can help me, so give me the strength to, to, to swim across this river. So he said, he, and God gave him big arms and gave him strong legs all of a sudden. He just felt strong, like he could do it. And he jumped into the river and he swam across. He almost drowned twice, but he got across it, right? And so he got across it and he said, praise the Lord. The other man said, hmm, well, God, uh, why don't you give me strength and also give me some tools to cross the river? How about that? So God gave him strong arms and strong legs, but he also gave him a rowboat. So he got in his rowboat, and he crossed, took about an hour to get through, but it almost capsized, but he still got to the other side of the river. And seeing what had happened with the first two men, the third man thought about it and prayed about it, and he said, God, please give me the strength and give me the tools and give me the intelligence to cross this river. And poof, he was turned into a woman. <laughs> wow. And so then she checked the map. <laughs> she then hiked 100 yards upstream and walked across the bridge. <laughs> Today we're talking about grace again, and many times we will ask God for help in all sorts of ways. And we ask, sometimes I think we ask Him for the wrong thing. We ask him for help, and we don't really ask maybe what he would like for us, or we don't really just ask for his grace. And many times, I believe, we ask for God for things. He gives us what we want, and it becomes a little more difficult than it should be simply because we haven't asked for his grace. If we just asked him for his grace, we'd often see things, and we, I think we'd often see ways around rivers we might not have noticed because it's him leading us and giving us that Grace. Many times it's as easy as just thinking and, and, and checking a map and seeing that there's an alternative. You don't have to do it all yourself, but we're always trying to do it ourselves. Now we'll say God's helping us, but really it's ourselves, right? God, give me the strength. No, sometimes it's just God, give me your strength. Amen. So when it comes to grace, it's often a battle. It's a battle in our own lives to receive God's grace. It's a, it's a battle uh, to give God's grace. It's, it's a battle to, to give God's grace to others, to, to live a, 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 a life of where we receive it. Because the human heart wants to be the one who performs. Just like that prayer, Lord, give me the strength to do it. Not, Lord, get me a cross. So the battle for grace starts in the human heart. 
But we need to battle for God's grace to perform for us. We're looking at today Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Paul says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Heavenly Father, as we continue to worship here today, we look at your scripture today. We see a a little bit of a biographical, bi biography, biographical sketch of Paul. Many times, Father, when we see these in Scripture, we have a hard time maybe applying it to our own lives. But you, you give it to us for a reason. You want us to look at how you worked in Paul's life. You want us to, to see what Paul did. And as a Christian who's seeking to follow you and give the gospel of grace to others and to receive grace from others... Lord, you would show us today what we can learn from this passage of Scripture when it comes about battling for grace. Father, I do pray today that, that my words reflect your heart and that we'll be touched today from your words. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I want to give you three elements of the battle for the truth of the gospel of grace. Three elements for the battle of the truth of the gospel of grace. Number one, the teachings of, go of gospel grace should be examined. The teachings of gospel grace should be examined. Look at verse 1. It says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation that set before them Though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. All right, what's happening here? Well, after 14 years of ministering, planning churches, Paul decides to go up to Jerusalem 
and put himself before the council of pastors, put himself before the council of apostles in Jerusalem, which was still kind of the heart of the church, the leadership of the New Testament church. And he wanted to make sure that his theology had not gone off track. He was examining his own teachings for 14 years. He wanted to make sure he was still teaching grace because, see, the battle for grace starts in our own hearts. The battle for grace starts in our own teachings and what we tell people, what we say. Now, you may not be a Bible teacher or a Bible preacher, but everything, how you talk to people, how you deal with people, how you treat people, that is a sermon. That is some type of gospel you are giving them. So the gospel of grace starts in our own hearts, and we should be examining our own life. Am I giving the grace of God to people? Not literally am I telling people the gospel, but am I even living that out with others? It should be examined. This is what Paul's doing. He says, well, maybe just to make sure, as he's been accused of false teaching and things, let me go up to Jerusalem, even though I've been called to reach the non-Jews, the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, and even though they they are really trying to reach the circumcised, the Jews, Let me make sure that my teaching still lines up with what is the sound teaching of the church. He mentions Titus with him, not being forced to be circumcised, which meant he was not forced to become Jewish in order to become a Christian. This was what the false teaching was saying. And you can have Jesus, you Gentile, you pagan, you person who's not Jewish, but you have to become Jewish first. You have to do everything the Torah commands, all the commandments, and then you can have Jesus, but you also kind of have to be Jewish. And Paul was saying, of course, this is not right. This is not true. This is a moralism that they had encountered. You have, to, you have to be both a Christian and Jewish. You have to observe all the commandments, observe all the feasts. But see, that is not Grace. That is not grace. And Paul was aware of that as he went and as he taught to the Gentiles. And he he put himself and he put his teaching under the leadership of the church. You see, if grace isn't taught, if grace isn't taught, if it's not modeled, it sure will not be lived out among believers. It's much easier. We naturally want to be moralists. We naturally have a desire to be Pharisees type people where we say we have to do this we got to do this well real Christians act like this and real Christians do this and we should do that and you should be doing this and I should be doing that now yes a lot of that is based on scriptural mandates we like to add things to God's word many times and if it's not taught it for sure will not be lived out in our own lives and among believers lives the teachings of gospel grace should always be examined to make sure we understand grace we are teaching it we are living it out we are modeling it and we see paul an apostle who wrote most of the new testament still being humble enough to say let me make sure i'm teaching this correctly and we forget that paul was a lifelong pharisee literally That was who he was before. His his heart's inclination was always to add something to the gospel. That's what he was brainwashed to do. That's what he he grew up doing. And that's what he naturally wanted to do as a person, as we all do. 
So he himself knew that he had to have a heart check from time to time. So the teachings of gospel grace should be examined. Secondly, the teachings of gospel grace should be defended and will need to be defended frequently. Verse 4, yet because of false brothers who were secretly brought into the church, they slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. The church will always have the threat of false brothers, false sisters who say they are in Christ. Always happen. False teaching always starts within the church. Always starts within God's church. Mankind is, is always, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, bringing these false teaching, bringing this moralism in to the church. And this moralism is often a part of the culture that's already ingrained. Now, there are many things about our culture here in Monk's Corner, just good old southern culture, that we're raised that have nothing to do with the Bible. Now, a lot of it does, but a lot of it doesn't. And sometimes we have a hard time deciphering what's cultural and what is biblical. And as Christians, our allegiance is not to our culture. Our allegiance is to Jesus Christ. So we have to be checking our hearts. We have to be defending our Jesus and our Gospels. And so when culture influences your religious beliefs when the cultures of the world that are unbiblical comes in and influences your religious beliefs in the gospel and they meld together that's called syncretism it's just the blending of biblical teachings and then cultural norms and it happens all the time there's a story of church planters who were from america in the 1950s and they went to to south korea and they started a church what do you do to start a church in the 1950s, right? You, you, well, you do it like you would the 1950s. So they went and they built a church building, brought in a piano, brought in an organ, had a pulpit, had 1950-type pews, 1950-type carpet. I don't know if it was green or yellow or what it was, right? But everything like the 1950s. And a few years ago, someone visited that church plant, and it was still in the 1950s. The men dressed like the 1950s. The women dressed like the 1950s. Americans, these are Koreans, dressing like 1950s Americans. They sang songs from that era and before. Nothing new came in. They were stuck in a 1950s American time warp in South Korea in the 21st century. How does that happen? It happens when church planters mistakenly bring not just the gospel, but bring American culture into the gospel culture changes you know how this is think about what was on tv in the 1950s versus the 1960s versus the 70s the 80s and how things have changed culture changes whether we want it to change or not it does sometimes it changes for the betterment of christians sometimes it changes for the worst of christians seems to kind of ebb and flow Every culture does this all the time, but many times on a deeper level. You know, we live in a country that gives us freedom of religion, gives us this, this pluralistic society. 
And it's great because we can worship here today. We don't have uh, the state telling us who we should believe in or who we must believe in. And so that is a gift from God. But the other side of the coin is what we deal with with that. Because we live in a pluralistic society with freedom of religion and freedom of thought, what then happens sometimes we don't put ourselves under an authority is we start becoming, the individual person becomes God. This is what you see all throughout our culture. Individual person becomes God. Many in our culture have the idea that they're going to do what they want to do, when they want to do it, and how they want to do it. That is an unbiblical way of looking at your life. Christians don't think that way. We are not the Lord of our lives. Jesus is the Lord of our lives, if you know Jesus Christ. We have to remind ourselves of that. So many people will take a little bit of Jesus. And they'll sprinkle in a little bit of New Age thought. They'll sprinkle in a little bit of pop psychology. They'll sprinkle in a little bit of of politics, a little bit of astrology. And we all have created a Christianity, some form of religion, some form of Jesus of your own liking. I hear people all the time, people saying stuff like, well, my Jesus does this or my Jesus does that. If your Jesus isn't based on this, it's not Jesus. Something you have created. This was the problem of Galatia and in Galatia. They tried to meld Judaism with following Jesus because that's what the culture taught. It was wrong then and it's wrong now. The New Testament gives very clear teaching on what it looks like to follow Jesus, but the human heart loves to add things to it. This is why the gospel of grace must always be defended because it gets easily infiltrated with the cultural norms and the beliefs. Paul further explains in verse 5, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, God tells us to submit to things in life, certain things. Children to their husbands. I mean, I mean, children to their parents. Sorry, we're skipping a step. Children to their parents. Wives to their husbands. Citizens submit to government authority. But one place Paul would not submit was to false teachers. And if he had submitted to their moralism, then the gospel would not be preserved for the Galatians. It would be tainted, it would be spoiled, it would be untrue, it would be false. I can't think of a more heartbreaking situation, scenario, if you are trying to witness to someone for Jesus Christ, and you are giving them, you are being an evangelist, you're giving them the, the, the gospel of grace, and you give them something that's not the gospel. What a heartbreaking thing that would be. Someone who's looking for truth, and you have the answer, and you don't give it to him. You give him something else. This is what was happening in Galatia. And it's even more difficult, Paul says, when the influential citizens are doing it. And they're putting pressure on you to dilute the gospel. Look at verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential... And what they were makes no difference to me because God shows no partiality. 
Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Paul said that those who seemed influential didn't add anything to Paul that he already didn't have. Why? Because he already had Jesus. If you have Jesus, you need nothing else. Nothing else you need. Nothing else gives peace like Jesus. Nothing else gives comfort like Jesus. Nothing else gives hope like Jesus. Everybody's trying to sell it to you. It's all over the, the TV, the internet, advertisements. You need this to have comfort in your life. You need this to have peace in your life. You need this to have hope in your life. And none of it is true. It might make you feel good for a little bit, but it goes away. The love of Jesus never dies. He didn't need anything that they were giving him because he already had Jesus Christ. Paul notes that God shows no partiality. Influence has nothing to do with understanding the gospel. Influence has nothing to do with living like Jesus. And so the teachings of the gospel of grace will have to be defended on a regular basis. And this is what he's doing. And number three, the teachings of gospel grace should be embraced. It should be embraced. Verse 7, on the contrary, Paul says, the church, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is the non-Jews, the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry worked also through my, for me for mine. Verse 9, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they would go to the Jews. So when the apostles in Jerusalem saw that Paul had defended the gospel and proclaimed the gospel to the nations and that he was saying the same thing they were saying, they shook hands. And we don't know if this is a literal shaking of hands or metaphorical shaking of hands, probably both. Because a handshake meant something. It wasn't just a handshake, it had meaning to it. It was metaphorical and literal at the same time. It was like a stamp of approval. And likewise, any time we see pastors and, and Christians and teachers and churches preaching the gospel of grace and defending the gospel of grace, we should embrace them as brothers and sisters of the gospel. Then at the end, Paul tacks on an interesting caveat. He says, verse 10, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. He connects this to the gospel of grace for a reason. Helping the poor is an extension of God's grace. We're all poor in spirit. But there are many people who are poor in materials. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament speaks a lot about God's people helping the poor. Why, why does it talk about that? Well, several reasons. For one, every person is made in the image of God. Every person has dignity, has, has worth, but also because no one else will take care of the poor. No one else will. For the history of the world, until recently, the poor were, were marginalized or uncared for. 
We now have governmental programs that do help the poor, but these programs were founded under Christian influence. And nevertheless, no matter what our government does for the poor, we're still called to help them. We have a benevolence ministry at this church. We've had it for many years. Our deacons help run it, help manage it. And yeah, there are people who come in and try to take advantage from time to time, but there are people who come in with real needs, real problems. They've been dealt a bad hand. They didn't have anybody to bail them out. They didn't have anybody to help them, no family to help. When they come in for help, they get help, but they also have the opportunity to get what they really need, the gospel of grace. And so that's why Paul says he was eager to do that. Well, a few centuries before Jesus, you may have heard of the man Alexander the Great. He conquered almost all of the known world. He was clever, he was smart, he was strong. And one day Alexander and his small company of soldiers, they approached a really strong walled city. And they knew who he was. And he stood outside the walls, Alexander, and, and he raised his voice demanding to see the king. And the king approached uh, the, the army there, and he says that he would agree to hear Alexander's demands. Alexander said, surrender to me immediately. I guess if you're going to be a conquering uh, uh, emperor, you can't, you got to be bold, right? <laughs> you got to be confident. Surrender to me immediately. And the king laughed. And he laughed and he said, why should I surrender to you? We have you outnumbered and you are no threat to us. It's just, just you and a small band of people. out this huge, high, fortified city. You are no threat to us. Well, Alexander, being the clever person he was, he says, well, allow me to demonstrate to you why you should surrender. And he ordered his men to line up single file and start marching. And he said, march over there. And march until I tell you to stop. And they marched and they marched and they dropped right off a cliff one by one to their death. And after about 10 did so, he told them to quit. And he looked back at the king and the king looked back at him and the king said, we surrender. We surrender. Alexander had soldiers willing to do whatever he said, willing to march off a cliff for him. And the battle for grace needs to be one where we are willing to walk off a cliff for the purity of the gospel of Christ. We need to be willing to do all it takes to preserve the gospel of Jesus Christ that says that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him who turns from their sin shall not perish but have everlasting life, and only through Jesus Christ will this happen. We need to defend it. We need to be able to walk off a cliff for it. Why? Because that is walking off a cliff metaphorically, literally, is not our greatest danger because our greatest danger has been killed on the cross. Our life has been purchased by Jesus Christ. We have nothing to fear in this life. We have rewards. We have eternity waiting for us in heaven. And there are many people who don't. And we are called to tell them that all they need 
is Jesus Christ. Jesus to love them, to forgive them, to turn from their sins and place their faith in him. The battle for the gospel of grace is real. We have a commanding officer that's much more talented than Alexander, much more worthy to be followed than Alexander, much more powerful because he is God in the flesh. And to him, we owe everything. Heavenly Father, as we close our time together, we thank you for saving us in Jesus. And as we worship you today, in this new year, 2021, and as we live in this situation in our own country that seems to be unstable, we have the virus hopefully start starting to slow down as people get vaccine. All these things happening, Lord. And you are still in control of everything. You are still our leader. You will always be. And we will put our allegiance to you as we battle our own hearts, we battle the world. But we don't have to battle you because you lead us into truth and you lead us into righteousness. Father, put people in our world, in our opportunities, put people in our path for opportunities, even in this pandemic, we could share Jesus with them. Not moralism, not some religion, but Jesus' pure, unadulterated Christianity, the gospel. We can give it to them because that's what they need. Father, we love you. We ask these things just in the power of your name today.